came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and each month. We bring you two fabulous episodes for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. One episode features Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who gives us his monthly sky guide for observers, accompanied by his fascinating astronomical tangent. And the other episode is a feature interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist or particle physicist. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. For today's feature interview, we zoom over to the Netherlands to speak with Dr. Joe Kellingham, who's a postdoc researcher at Astron and a Vini Fellow at Leiden University and who has discovered an amazing Wolf-Rayet star system called RPEP, 8,000 light-years away in our own galaxy. Let's zoom over there right now. Ah, welcome, Joe. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Joe. Here we go. I was lucky enough to read an exciting paper in Nature Astronomy about a rare discovery in our galaxy. And I did some follow-up, and today we're very fortunate to be speaking to lead author Dr. Joe Callingham, an Aussie astronomer who's been using radio telescopes to probe the inner workings of a unique system in our own Milky Way galaxy. Thanks for speaking with us, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Brendan. Okay, so before we talk about how you found this system and what it means for research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Joe, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Sure, Brendan. Um, I grew up in a small town in New South Wales uh, called Sandy Beach, which is about 40 minutes north of Coos Harbour on the mid-north coast town of a thousand people, beautiful night skies when you're out on the beach. And I was always fascinated by what was up there and obviously science fiction, everything around me. But I wouldn't say space was number one where I was driven to. I just enjoyed science. I I definitely remember that where space was an important part of that and and astronomy, but uh, I could have been happy with chemistry, physics, anything in general. What drove me is a hard question. I think it's just multitude of factors had a very supporting family uh, that just encouraged where my interests went. And 
lo and behold, I'm an astronomer today. I can't, I can't point to a singular element. I was like any kid, you know. I wanted to be an Air Force pilot at one point, a policeman another time, you know. So I was, I, this is just where I am today. Fantastic. So perhaps you could tell us a little about those early school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Yeah, as I alluded to just just then, uh, there was there was never a singular moment where like I was four and I'm like I want to be an astronomer. And some of my colleagues have those moments. Um, I was always engaged by it, and I always found it fascinating. I remember my science teacher when I was in probably year eight, sitting me down and going, "You know what? You're you're good at space. You know, there's careers down this path if you really want to focus." So I'm like, "Oh, you know, space is good, but I like all the science, you know." And that continued all the way up to university as well. I couldn't even choose what to study, really, at university, enrolling in a double degree of science and arts originally. Fantastic. So after that successful school career, you completed your advanced BSc at the University of Sydney with first-class honours in physics and applied mathematics and honours studies in astronomy. Then you completed your PhD in astrophysics and your thesis was on young galaxies. Now, we'll soon get you to tell us about your discovery of RPEP, but first, can you tell us a little about what drew you into astrophysics? Yeah, so maybe this is uh, like maybe my university story. So as I mentioned, I originally enrolled in double degree of science and arts because I loved history a lot. So I really, when I first rocked up my first day at University of Sydney, I had no idea whether I was going to become a chemist, a physicist or a historian pretty much was the way I went. If anything, I liked my physics the most, but I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't good enough there. And maybe that was a reflection of the schooling I received in year 12, because when I walked into my first year physics class, I felt blown away by the people around me. They were just so much more advanced than I was. And so what slowly drew me, ironically, was the first year astronomy course at University of Sydney was offered. And because I was doing science and arts, I was already full in all the courses I could take. I was taking ancient Greek history, geopolitics, and I had to take maths, and I was taking chemistry and physics. I couldn't fit any more in. To do astronomy, I had to overload. That meant going to university much more, staying longer hours and stuff like that. But I thought it was worth it for astronomy. I'm so glad I did. But I hadn't taken that first year astronomy course. I don't know where I'd be today. And I, I was very lucky, and I enjoyed it. It was my, one of my favorite courses I ever did at university. Fantastic. Thanks. So let's move on then to your thesis first. The Extragalactic Sky at Low Radio Frequencies, a study of peak spectrum sources. First of all, you've pointed out deficiencies in the current evolutionary model of radio galaxies. Can you talk us through this and what is the current model and what are the problems with it? Sure. So just to make sure everyone's on the same page, a radio galaxy quite often is just whenever material falls into a black hole at the center of a galaxy. Our Milky Way, as, as your listeners are probably aware of, has a supermassive black hole, but conveniently, it's not very active for us. But a lot of other galaxies out there, for whatever reasons, materials falling on this black hole and producing these beautiful long jets, which heavily influence how this galaxy evolves. So what I studied were the early stages of that. So when material just starts falling on, you get these jets, kind of like the inverse of uh, material falling down uh, your uh, bathtub, you know, when you get that spiral pattern. And so these, these jets push out from this galaxy and I was understanding the baby stages of that. And what I was showing is that a lot of these small jets aren't actually small because these things are young, but because they're frustrated. There's material that's hindering the process of these jets ejecting 
from the galaxy. Just imagine a bunch of dust and gas and even stars to some limited extent stopping this stuff from evolving in some galaxies. And so my thesis was trying to understand how important that was to whether these, these things can evolve with these giant galaxies we see in the radio sky. Fantastic. Now, something else that leapt out when I was reading your thesis, your acknowledgements were terrific. Your supervisors, uh, Brian Gainsler and Roy Eckers, your support from Natasha Hurley-Walker and Stephen Tingay, among others we've interviewed, you acknowledge Python and latex coders and the archive environment. Your Tom Stoppard quote is a very appropriate one. And the big takeaway for me was that it takes more than a village to raise a scientist. Would you like to mention here some of the inspirations for your journey? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It takes a village to raise a scientist. You know, I think the public has this concept of this isolated genius who sits in the corner and is typing away and then has a eureka moment and then everything's solved. And the reality is that all my experience with science has been an incredibly team-driven activity. And as you mentioned, I I wouldn't be here uh, today talking to you if it wasn't for Brian Gainsler in particular, who's been fundamental in my career. And and Ron Eakers for driving a lot of the inspiration and and ideas that led to my thesis and and even the work I followed. You know, he he gave me a lot of understanding of how the sociology of science is done. Maybe a lot of people think of like science as this very objective tool, and and it's true. It's uh, uh, the underlying philosophy is the scientific method, which you're meant to be objective. But let's face it, it's done through the lens of a person, and so the sociology of your surroundings, you know, how you work with a team, how does a team collaborate? Ron really taught me important ways of being able to use that to make your science the best you can. So it was a really fascinating journey, my PhD, and it really does take a village to raise a scientist, and I was incredibly lucky to have a, a, a great village around me. Yeah, great. So then it's over to the Netherlands for a postdoc, and now you're a Vini Fellow at Leiden University studying radio exoplanets and stars at low frequencies. Can you tell us how that big move came about? And I assume you've been using... LOFAR and APATIF. Also, is your research limited to archival data now that many instruments have shut down due to COVID-19? I'll answer the last question first. So the answer at the end is no. Our instruments are still going ahead. Radio astronomers have been ahead of the game here with making our instruments largely remotely driven. And so I logged in the other day to observe with the compact array in Narrabri, uh, the radio telescope out there in Australia, from the Netherlands and I could just keep going as though I, know, I could have been in my bath, you know, for all, for all matters of purpose. So for COVID-19, for a radio astronomer, in terms of instruments still going, it's impacted a bit, but not dramatically. For my optical colleagues, the, the people that, that observe just like we use our eyes to look at the night sky, that's been much tougher because their instruments aren't as robotic in the majority of cases. And so that, that's, that's an issue they've had to deal with and they're only just starting to come online in a lot of cases. Yeah, so to your first question about moving over to the Netherlands and how did my career shift change towards more radio exoplanets and radio stars, it's a good question. My first position was at Astron as a, as a fellow called a De Bruyne fellow, named after a famous Dutch radio astronomer called Geo De Bruyne. And I took that very seriously in the fact that I was meant to have fun. I wasn't a postdoc that was meant to follow what a proposal that a professor had put together, I was kind of given like a mini professorship for three years where I'm left to my own devices. 
Now, that's a very sink or swim attitude, you know. If you, if you don't do well, there's no one there to, like, catch you or make sure. It's not like a PhD anymore. You haven't got a supervisor going, oh, you should maybe not waste so much time in that, in that, in that rabbit hole, Joe. You know, that's not going to lead anywhere. You're kind of just uh, thrown in the deep end and see if you can swim. And uh, I thought that was a, a really interesting area about searching for exoplanets and, and radio stars. And maybe your listeners might not appreciate this fully, but when we look at the night sky, obviously all we see is stars. But if I could turn your eyes into radio antennas, I, and I turned them on, and I, I told you to look at the night sky, you'd, you'd see predominantly outside of the sun galaxies. Most of the, the objects in the radio sky are galaxies. And so finding stars are tough. But when you do find them, they tell you really interesting things that optical light can't tell you, such as magnetic field strengths, which we now understand are really important to understanding whether life evolved on Earth and all that kind of fun stuff like that. So yeah, I kind of pivoted because I thought this is my chance, this is my opportunity to explore and have fun. And uh, again, I was taking kind of a Ron Eker's approach as don't follow the thunderous herd, do something new and outrageous. If you're not doing something new and outrageous, why bother doing science? Maybe that's extreme, but I really think I'm trying to follow that vein. Fantastic. Okay. So many of our listeners have enjoyed our previous episodes on the MWA and Gleam. Are you still using this data source? You just mentioned the APCA. Um, is there such a thing as a researcher having a favourite instrument? Oh, certainly. This is uh, like a musician having their favourite instrument, you know. Like, there's no doubt I'm a radio astronomer. I can use optical telescopes, but I just can't make them play in the same way I can make my radio telescope play. You know, the sound doesn't come out as nice. Um, and then within that, you know, within the subset of, say, like trumpets, then you have your, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not a trumpeter, you know, but I'm sure there's some very small niche of, like, I like this trumpet the most and that's the one I can get best working. And it's the same for an astronomer. For me, it's the MWA and LOFAR. MWA has a, a soft spot because obviously I did my PhD there, so that's always going to have a fundamental part of, of my personality. <laughs> I guess it's inbuilt in my personality now after spending three and a half years looking and playing with it. But, uh, and LOFAR today, because it's just uh, what I would describe as MWA on steroids. You know, the Dutch have, have produced something in the Northern Hemisphere. It's just the MWA times, times five. So there's a lot more of it. So you can do a lot more things with it. But yeah, so in terms of am I still using MWA data and Gleam? Yeah, I am. Nearly uh, at least once a week, I'm co-supervising a student with Natasha Hurley-Walker and Nick Seymour, uh, uh, Kat, Kat Ross. I think you've had her on a, for an episode as well, using uh, Gleam and MWA data. So I don't get as dirty with MWA data as I used to because I've been focusing more on LOFAR. But yeah, of course, I still play with it now and then. Excellent. Okay, we'll move a, a bit closer to UPEP now and we'll do a bit of background on one of the things that astronomers love and that's explosions. So after the Big Bang, we've got various types of novas and supernovas, kilonovas, we've got mergers, gamma ray bursts, FRBs. Your UPEP discovery predicts an imminent gamma ray burst what is a gamma ray burst and how do they get triggered you're so right about astronomers love explosions i really think astronomers are something like sometimes like children where we go after the bright shiny things the shorter they live the more excited we get you know it's like chase the thing that just went off you know, as fast as possible and it's because you learn new things the time domain is really an interesting one but in terms of answering your questions about what is a gamma ray burst there's two flavors. Um, your listeners might have heard of one. This is a, around the gravitational wave event. This is when two neutron stars merge 
neutron stars being the the core of a, a massive star that at the end of its life, just before it went su- uh, when it went supernova, compressed everything into into a, a, a really small area, say like 10 kilometers, and, and it's full of neutrons. So if I had like a teaspoon of a neutron star, it'd weigh as much as the Earth. So it's very, very in-depth, dense material. So it's quite a fascinating object. So when those two things merge, you get what's called a short gamma ray burst. So let's just put those two aside for the moment. Um, the more important one for the RPEP story is what's called a long gamma ray burst. And this is when a massive star uh, ends its life. And so you think of the sun, now just multiply the, the sun by 20. You know, if we did that, our sun would look really blue because when you increase mass, you increase temperature of a star and that would mean life on Earth would be roasted. Wouldn't be around here to have this conversation, that's for sure, if our, our star is what's called an O-type star or a blue supergiant is another word for it. So when these blue supergiants near the end of their life, they can go through this phase called a Wolf-Rayet phase. Now, this is right, like... This is the elderly phases of, of massive stars. You know, these are the people sitting in a retirement village and any minute they could just go, and that would be the, the next, fa- uh, that, that's the end of it, you know. But in some of these, if these, these Wolf-Ray stars are rapidly rotating and they're spinning really fast, when they go undergo the supernova explosion, when they go bang, they can form a really quick jet. And so the star spinning so fast, when it collapses, it collapses faster at the poles than at the equator and forms these jets and that emits these very, very bright gamma ray bursts. And they're some of the most energetic objects in the sky. Fantastic. And that gives us a segue right into your discovery of RPEP. And reading up about it, it looks like a WTF moment rather than a Eureka moment. Tell us how you found RPEP. No, I think you're 100% correct. It's, uh, wow, what have I got myself into here when I, when I discovered that rather than like, ah, this solves everything I was looking to solve. Majority of the time, your questions come as you're also investigating, this is where the scientific method is more convoluted than what you write down in, in a notebook or what a, a philosopher would write down as step one, step two, step three. But yeah, so let's just turn into the discovery of RPEP. This is a, a long story. And this is again goes to show that how, how uh, this is a, a story over about five years. It actually started before my PhD. In my honors year, when I was being supervised by Brian Gainsler and another astronomer called Sean Farrell, we were just looking at bright radio and x-ray sources, trying to understand what generates the x-ray and radio emission, uh, what objects are in the sky. They tend to be energetic objects. So we were thinking, well, you know, we might find some new neutron stars or x-ray binaries. This is when a star is paired with a black hole and you get really bright x-rays from it. And so with RPEP, we cross-matched these radio and x-ray catalogs and we saw something really bright that made no sense. And the x-ray properties didn't look like a neutron star or a black hole. And we're like, what does this even mean? And this is when I went across the corridor at University of Sydney and I started having a chat with Peter Tadil. I'm just like, wow, this thing's really bright. No one's found it before. One, how did that happen? This thing's really bright. This should have been discovered before. So am I doing something wrong was generally my inference. And particularly what we noticed with Peter was that the infrared properties, now infrared indicates huge amount of dust, which is odd. When you have something energetic that's really bright in X-ray and radio, you shouldn't have dust about that. Dust is something that's really weak. As soon as it gets hit by a UV photon or X-ray photon, that rips it apart. And this thing had a huge amount of dust in it. So this is already getting confusing. So Peter and I ran away and in my PhD, during my PhD, I was doing it on the side while I was doing radio baby galaxies. And we got some time on the very large telescope in, in Chile. So this is an optical infrared telescope. That was one of those shuttered during uh, COVID-19. And we got an amazing image back that's just flabbergasted and 
And it's probably the nicest image I'll make in my career, even if I'm lucky enough for my career to expand 50 years. It is, it is beautiful and, and it's not a simulation. It's just what's in the night sky. And this is one of the fun things about astronomy. It, it is really quite amazing. And it's a, a stunning image. Now, so it's a genuine case here of being in the right place at the right time with a right curiosity and the right instrument. So could you fill us out a little bit about Wolf Ray at stars, I saw that a pinwheel nebula was involved. Can you tell us what and where is RPEP? Sure. So we've kind of alluded to this with Wolf Ray stars and all this extra stuff. So what really RPEP is, is what's called a colliding wind binary. Um, so what happens is when two massive stars get close to each other, they're putting it out so much wind and so much mass that when those winds collide, you get a very, very, very bright shock that emits in X-ray and radio quite easily because you've got millions of degrees. This is like, uh, it, the equivalent would be, I think the numbers work out, uh, a thousand semi-trailer trucks traveling at like 10% the speed of light colliding per second, you know? So like, it is a crazy number in terms of uh, the energetics of these winds colliding in RPEP. So with RPEP, what's really weird about it is that it's really bright in the radio and when these stars collide, obviously they're orbiting one another because of gravity, just like the Earth orbits the sun, but the Earth's not very big, so the sun doesn't very, move very much. But when you put two massive stars to each other, they're in like a dance. They're moving around a common center. They're doing this nice, elegant pattern. And nature loves producing, and let's make it more fundamental, that loves producing Archimedean spirals in places where they can. And so... What happens with a pinwheel nebula is these two massive stars, you get dust production where usually one of them is a wolf ray star. Near the end of their life, they can produce a lot of carbon. And we think that's really important producing this dust. And the stars are kind of big enough that, well, this is a really debated issue what I'm going to tell you, but the dust can kind of form in the shadow of the shock and, and the star itself. And then this dust wraps itself as the stars orbit each other into these beautiful Archimedean spirals. Now, RPEP sees that, but much more massive and has extra complicated features. So it's kind of in the, in the vein of what we saw before with pinwheel nebulae, but it kind of violates it in other ways that uh, is confusing. That is awesome. So you've got this spinning around there. Now, how can you tell how fast it's spinning? And why did this astronomical phenomenon get to be called RPEP? So it's a good question about how do we know how fast it's spinning? Because the answer is we don't know exactly. We just have an idea it has to. And so this idea comes from the fact that from spectra, when we look at how the light from the star varies in wavelength, we can see these beautiful spectral lines. As I mentioned, carbon. So when you look at the, uh, this star, you see these really bright carbon lines. Because it's near the end of its life and it's a very hot star, you also see helium lines. Helium is really hard to ionize. So you, for people remembering high school physics, uh, helium is a noble gas. It's got two electrons and two protons. It's really hard to remove one of those electrons. You need a really hot star to do that. So this is one of the characteristics of a Wolf Ray star. No hydrogen, lots of helium, and sometimes carbon, uh, sometimes uh, nitrogen as well. But by looking at these uh, helium lines, we could tell, hang on, this is how fast this wind's moving. And these winds in this system are moving like 3,000 kilometers a second, 2,300 kilometers a second, very, very fast. So when we look at the dust, that beautiful spiral, that dust should be moving at that speed. Yeah. But we see it doesn't. And it really, really, would, that was the underlying enigma of the system. When you actually look at how the dust moves, but we know there's fast winds in the system, you're like, how can we make this work? 
our proposed model, and I, I, by no means it, it's right, it's still debated, but this is, this is a way we can make this discrepancy go away, is if uh, one of the stars at the center is rapidly rotating. Remember I told you about the long gamma ray bursts when these stars rapidly rotate and they explode, they produce these long gamma ray bursts? Yep. We're proposing one is rapidly rotating at the center here, and at the, at the equator, we're getting a really slow wind, and that, that slow wind is one that produces that dust. And that's why we're going at like a much slower rate, while at the poles, where we can see kind of down to the surface of the star, that's where we're getting that really fast wind from. So it's complicated, but that's what our idea of RPEP is. And so that's why it's interesting, because we never expected a rapidly rotating Wolf Ray star in our own galaxy, sitting right there. Yeah, that's a little exciting. That is fantastic. And it looks like RPEP is not something that's just been discovered and put in a box. It looks like it's been quite an inspiration for further research and your understanding of the system has really evolved over time. So it, now I read somewhere that it's a triple system, more than just a double system. Look, what have you learnt about RPEP since your initial discovery? And more importantly, perhaps, if it goes critical, will we get fried? <laughs> Yeah. So answer the, the first question before the fun second one. It's a triple system, in fact. Yeah. So it's a, it's a weird system. So we have these two massive wolf ray stars. We now know it's a binary wolf ray stars. So often I was saying these colliding wind binaries, what happens you see is a wolf ray star and an O type star. For some reason, we've caught this system in a weird phase where they're both wolf ray stars. And that's, that's our first confident system in, I would say, in, in our Milky Way, which again, goes to show just object is just getting odder and odder and odder. And then to make the situation even weirder, it seems to be like a spectator. I know like a, a bystander is like watching this tug of war going on with these two massive stars just to the north going, I, we think, right around the other pair system. And this is another massive star, uh, but it's not a Wolf Ray star. It's not the end of, near the end of its life. But yeah, it's fun to see like, looks like a spectator and, and, and watching an watching a interesting football match going on in front of it. I wouldn't want to be that star. It wouldn't be a fun environment to be in. But in terms of will it go critical or will we get fried? The answer is we don't know. Some people took our original paper and we have estimates of orbital inclination and stuff like that, but it really doesn't tell you how the orientation of the star is relative to our system. And so the answer is I can't tell you. I won't be like a crazy maniac saying, oh, it's all going to explode, we're all going to die. It's definitely not the case, we think. The star itself has metallicity that's not too dissimilar from the sun. So it's rapidly rotating now. When it explodes, will it still be rapidly rotating? I would have to bet not based on what we understand from how stars lose their mass, but I can't be confident in that, that statement either. So this is why it's still an active area of research. Whether it's rapidly rotating, how fast is it rotating? What's the uh, inclination of the system relative to us? Would we get fried if it went off? Let's just say it's, it's a little closer comfort and not a lot of fun, but... There's a lot of systems like that out there already. And hey, you just got to live day after day and uh, hope a giant gamma ray burst doesn't fry out. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like the big takeaway is that this new system is teaching you new things all the time. Yeah, in particular, I think it's just, it's teaching us massive stars die in ways we didn't really expect. And that's really important understanding how the galaxy gets enriched and how new stars can form from that and how gamma ray bursts go off because we use them to understand galaxies far away because these things are really bright. We can trace them out the galaxies really, really, really far away. So it's an interesting 
phenomena that we've stumbled on. Fantastic, and I love the excitement in your voice there. Thank you, Joe. Now, the microphone's all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science communities, in outreach, inequity, denialism, career paths, your own passion for research, or our simple quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours, Joe. Wow, thanks, Brendan. Well, considering the political environment we are today, you know, it's a, it's a real open-ended. It looks like society's failed so many people in so many ways. Uh, I think the number one thing is, I'll speak as an Australian, but there's very few Aboriginal ast- astronomers and there's very few professional Aboriginal astronomers. As in, it's very rare to meet a, a professional Aboriginal astronomer. And that's a shame and an indictment on our society and also on our profession. Uh, that we haven't encouraged these people in a way to to activate and be part of our society and and this field and and they have a huge amount to contribute and so I think Australia really needs to take a long hard look at itself about how Aboriginal people are educated and providing the environment so they can go to university they are supported in these environments and and they can join academia in a way that's accepted and and that means also making sure they're looked after financially and given the support early on to love science and and enjoy science and see it as a career path. Indeed, we've got a long way to go. We have interviewed Kirsten Banks and I've lined up an interview with Crystal DiNapoli. She's coming in two episodes time. So we're doing our best with our diversity policy here at Astrophys to include as many Indigenous astronomers as possible. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Oh, that's a a good question. Right now, the fast radio burst field is really evolving on a very quick rate. Maybe to an outsider, it looks like it's going at a palatial rate, but compared to many other scientists right now, it's exponential growth in our understanding. What is a fast radio burst? What, is it, what can it tell us about the universe? I'm sure you might have a, a colleague on at some point in the future about the reach and uh, nature result on fast radio bursts and understanding the amount of material between galaxies and all that kind of stuff. That's a fascinating thing I'd keep an eye on. The other thing is, uh, at the moment, I'm working really hard on, on trying to find exoplanets around other stars. And uh, I've got an interesting paper under review at the moment that if I manage to wrestle my way past the referees, we'll be on your doorstep soon. <laughs> Thanks. We'll keep an eye out for it and we'll give it a plug when we see it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Joe Kellingham. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks especially for your time all the way over there in Amsterdam. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule and we'll encourage all listeners to check out your Nature Research Astronomy paper. They can find it at tinyearl.com forward slash APEP2018. That's A-P-E-P 2018, all lowercase. And to follow Joe at, at Astro Joe C. That's capital A astro capital j joe c you'll find him on twitter congratulations and thank you joe yeah see you later brendan good luck in oz bye-bye and remember astrophys is free and unsponsored and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from rami mandal at spaceaustralia.com and another great astro podcast is the Skyantists, with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, 
always check out Dr Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. In our next feature interview, we're zooming over to Ithaca in New York to speak with Dr Thea Kazakis, a researcher at the Carl Sagan Institute, Cornell University. Thea is a pioneering researcher in techniques to study the atmosphere of exoplanets and biosignature modelling and detection. It's great. Till then, isolate, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please, do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio Wave!